You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The loudest, the biggest, the brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. Oh, man, what you talking about? Buck says they would come to New York. They would play a 14 double header at Yankee Stadium. They, of course, were staying in Harlem, Abyssinia Baptist Church. He said they would pre- he would preach a baseball sermon. All the teams are there in the church. And then afterwards, they would leave, headed over to the Bronx uh, in full regalia. You got nearly 40,000 going to watch the game. At one of my early stops on this journey through sports radio, I met Bob Kendrick. I joined Kansas City's 610 Sports Radio 20 years ago, back in 2003, and spent nearly five years in KC. I loved every minute of my time there, and it was primarily because of people like Bob. You see, he's the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, one of the coolest and most important visits we have in this country, sports or otherwise. KC has incredibly deep roots to the Negro Leagues with the legendary Monarchs, winners of 13 league titles, and the squad that featured Satchel Paige, Cool Papa Bell, Jackie Robinson, and Ernie Banks at one point or the other. Bob spins tales of these legends like they happened yesterday, down the street. He's the perfect visionary and leader for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. He's a magnificent spring of knowledge and just has a contagious enthusiasm for that history and all those ball players. You see, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum recently honored two New York pitchers, Doc Good and Al Downing. I wanted to chat with him about those two aces and about the rich history of the Negro Leagues here in New York City and the ensuing integration that began here as well. Brooklyn was the franchise that brought color to baseball with Jackie Robinson and others. They were the pioneers in many, many ways. We know all about the Yankees and Mets, Dodgers and Giants, but how about the Black Yankees or the Newark Eagles? This has got to be my favorite conversation that we've done yet here on the podcast series. This is Bob Kendrick at the Negro League's New York accent. Bob, how you doing? Yeah, I'm good, man. It's good to see you. And thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Let's talk about Doc and Downing and the Hall of Game. For those that don't know, you guys were celebrating multiple black aces throughout pitching history in Major League Baseball. So tell me how you guys got to the group that you did and why Al Downing and Dwight Gooden stuck stuck out for you. Well, it, it kind of emanated from a brand new exhibition that we created this year called the Black Aces. 
And the Black Aces exhibition was done to commemorate and celebrate the 75th anniversary of the legendary Leroy Satchel Page joining then the Cleveland Indians, of course, the Cleveland Guardians now in 1948 DA. And we don't know. They say he was 42. He may have been 52. Wow. And, and of course, the old man helps Cleveland win the pennant. They subsequently go on to win the World Series. And, and I say this all the time. My Cleveland fans get tired of hearing me say this. It was the last time that Cleveland won the World Series was <laughs> 1948 with the legendary Leroy Satchel Page and, of course, Larry Doby, who had integrated the American League right after Jackie joins Brooklyn. And so that commemoration of the 75th anniversary of Satchel led us to tell the story of some of the great black and brown pitchers of the Negro Leagues. And the late Jim Mudcat Grant had coined the phrase the Black Aces to pay recognition to, in the history of Major League Baseball, only 15 African-American pitchers have won 20 games or more in a major league season. Mm. Part of the reason was, however, is that that position did simply did not transition from the Negro Leagues into Major League Baseball. I guess you could almost look at it in the same vein in which it has been with the black quarterback. There was this always underlying belief that the black pitcher wasn't smart enough to do this in the major leagues. And perhaps there was also this mindset that if those players were going to move from the Negro Leagues into Major League Baseball, they were going to play every day. They weren't going to work every fourth or fifth day. And so the pitching position just simply did not transition. This exhibit introduces you to some of the greatest black and brown pitchers to ever tote a rubber and had the opportunities presented itself and the doors open, DA, they would have been perennial 20-game winners in the Major Leagues. And so since we had this exhibition and we brought back the Hall of Game this year, we thought that it would be perfect to recognize some of the surviving members of the Black Aces and induct them into the Hall of Game. And so that's how we got down to Al Downing to recognize the late, great Vital Blue, Dontrell Willis, Mike Norris, and of course, Doc Gooden. CeCe Sabathia and David Price would have been included in the group, but they had previous commitments and could not be here. So we'll come back and honor them in a subsequent induction ceremony. But that's how we landed on that stellar group of athletes that we celebrated this past weekend here in Kansas City. That's amazing. So I guess I didn't realize this. I figured when baseball integrated largely that all players at all positions would have done so. And I'm thinking back to Bob Gibson and Juan Marichal, the 1960s of black and brown pitchers. But now that you say that, when did it start to popularize having black and brown pitchers uh, really come up through the minors and into the major leagues? Well, you got more brown pitchers than you did black pitchers. And, uh, you know, and that's been part of that, that whole evolution, so to speak. And I think about a guy like a Dave Winfield. D.A. Dave Winfield was the MVP of the College World Series. He was a pitcher in college. Mm-hmm. He got converted to an outfielder. Now, again, Dave Winfield was tremendously talented. And you can say, again, they didn't want that kind of talent sitting on the bench. 
That's why Winnie had such a great arm in the outfield because Winnie was a dominant pitcher in college. He didn't get the hit until his junior year in college. And he's a guy that gets you 3,000 hits when he gets to the major leagues. He never got to swing the bat. But they converted him, of course, to an outfielder when he gets there to the major leagues. But we go back and we look at the likes of Dick Cannonball Reddy, Leon Jay, Hilton Smith, Jose Mendez. These guys, Dick Cannonball Redding, should be in the Hall of Fame. The other three that I mentioned are in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. They were great pitchers, but the integration of the game occurred, occurred after they were too old to get to the major league. They were well past their prime. Don Newcomb would be the first black ace. New comes over. He's the first to win 20 games in the National League. The late Jim, Cat, Jim Mudcat Grant was the first to do it in the American League. But by and large, you just did not see that many black pitchers. Uh, and, and that's something that I'm hoping this celebration of the black aces, we're starting to see the, the likes of Tristan McKenzie and Hunter Green and uh, the young kid over Je, Josiah over at the Nationals. So we're starting to see this proliferation uh, of young black pitchers. And I know Mudcat would be I, wherever he is. I'm sure he's in that great somewhere, smiling down, hoping that they will move into that echelon of black aces. Al Downing broke in with the Yankees in 1961. He played for the Yankees throughout the 60s, part of some wonderful Yankees World Series championship teams of the 60s. He was not the first black Yankee, though. That was Elston Howard back in the what, early to mid-50s. That 1950s, uh -huh. As a matter of fact, Elston played here for the Kansas City Monarchs. Oh, interesting. That's right. So uh -huh. did Al Downing face resistance? Was it difficult for him? Or by 61, had it become normalized? It was normalizing. But he was experiencing some of the same things that Jackie experienced on both sides of the ledger. Because he talked about pitching here in Kansas City and how the black fans came out to cheer him on. And, and so you had that kind of cross-pollination. I think when you're good, people just forget about what color you are and they just root for you because you're a great player and you're helping contribute to the team. But early on and, and maneuvering through the minor leagues was a real challenge not for just the black pitcher, but for all of these guys who were transitioning uh, into Major League Baseball. So, yeah, Elston Howard didn't come up through the Yankees until 1955. So it was a full seven years after Jackie or eight yeah. years after Jackie before the Yankees integrated like the Dodgers had and the Giants had. I believe Monty Irvin was the first black Giants ball player, correct? Well, actually, Hank Thompson, oh. the great Henry Thompson who holds the distinction of having integrated two major league teams. Hank Thompson integrates the St. Louis Browns, and then he also integrates the New York Giants. So he beats both Monty Irvin and Willie Mays to the Giants. Just about a few days with Monty Irvin. And the three of them formed the major's first all-black outfield. Hank Thompson was an infielder by training. Hank Thompson was outstanding. Monty Irvin, of course, was outstanding and could have been the first to break the color barrier. That He was Branch Rickey's first choice. Mm. Rickey ultimately settled in on Jackie Robinson, but the great Monty Irvin was his first choice. 
And the Newark Eagles owner, Effort Mainly, essentially blocked Monty Irvin from being the first. Because that's who Branch Ricky wanted. And, and rightfully so, Monty Irvin was a 5-2 superstar with movie star good looks. He had everything that you needed to be a star, and that's who Ricky wanted. But Effort Manley, as a matter of fact, Ricky had snuck and signed Monty Irvin before he gets Jackie Robinson. And Effort Manley threatened to litigate. And he backs off of Monty Irvin and turns his sight here to Kansas City to Jackie Roosevelt Robinson, who was playing here for the Kansas City Monarchs. Wow. And as I tell people all the time, contrary to popular belief, Branch Ricky didn't sign Jackie Robinson away from the Kansas City Monarchs. DA, he took Jackie Robinson away from the Kansas City Monarchs. Because mm. uh, wow. what he was shrewd enough to understand was that the Monarchs owner, James Leslie Wilkerson, couldn't fight back. You know why? Because Wilkie was white. And I have no doubt that Ricky was shrewd enough to understand that this white man who made his entire living in black baseball cannot be the public face of blocking what every black person in America had been waiting for, and that was for a black man to play in the major leagues. If he does, it's a wrap, man. That fan base, that black fan base that had been so loyal to the monarch would have turned their backs on him right away. And I have no doubt that Ricky knew this. So he had Wilkie stuck between that proverbial rock and hard place. So publicly, Wilkie said all the right things because he knew he had to protect his business interests. Probably wow. he's seething. But he's not seething because a black man was about to play in the major leagues. But this black man you're going to take away from me, you're going to put me out of business. And he was absolutely right. He sells his interest in the Kansas City Monarchs in 1948, the year after Robinson takes the field because the handwriting is on the wall. It's not a matter of if. It was simply a matter of when the Negro Leagues were going to fold. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wow, that is amazing. It obviously history suggests that the Dodgers and the Giants were much more progressive at integrating their baseball team than the Yankees were. Was that resistance league to league, National League versus American League? Was that ownership or front office, Dodgers, Giants versus the Yankees? Or was that the fan base of those three teams where the, the Dodgers, Giants, maybe more working class versus the upper elite? the white wealth of the New York Yankees of that era. Buck O'Neill would surmise that the Yankees didn't need a black player. The Yankees always had great teams. 
But part of the reason that it took the Yankees so long to integrate was that the Yankees were making money off Negro League. And there were other major league teams that were making money off Negro League, which is why it took so long to integrate. The social conditions of our time had something to do with it. But the almighty dollar also played a role as well. We were able to acquire several years ago a letter that was written by former New York Yankees managing partner Larry McPhail. And the letter DA was written in 1945. And it was written in response to New York Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, who, like a lot of others, were putting a lot of pressure on Major League Baseball to open up its doors and allow black and brown players from the Negro Leagues to play. They were getting a lot of pressure now. And MacPhail was part of Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia's commission to examine the integration of the game. And so he writes what is called the MacPhail Memorandum. And in the MacPhail Memorandum, he essentially outlines why integration is such a terrible idea. And, and actually, man, he would offer up some points of validity. For instance, he would say, if we sign players from the Negro Leagues, we will put the Negro Leagues out of business. That was going to be a natural byproduct of integration. He would go on to say, we can't just go in and take these players away from their Negro League team. They are legally bound by contract. Again, he is right. Now, Brez Ricky didn't think that. But by and large, he is absolutely right. But then he'd go on to say something completely asinine. He would go on to say, well, you know, they lack the faculties to play in our league. Now, I don't know when you had to be a Rhodes Scholar to play (laughs) (laughs) But that was that prevailing belief. And that's that belief that I talked about as it related to the black pitcher and the black catcher. Those were considered cerebral positions, and it was that belief that we weren't smart enough to do it. When in actuality, over 40% of the athletes that played in the Negro Leagues had some level of college education. Less than 5% of those who played in the majors at the same time had any college education for the simple reason then that the Major Leagues didn't want you to go to college. They got you right out of high school, put you into their farm system, and then you work your way to the big league. Well, the Negro Leagues didn't have that kind of sophisticated farm system. So what did we do? We trained on the campuses of historically black colleges and universities, competed against the black college baseball team, and then they recruited a great deal of their workforce from those HBCUs. So they had a disproportionate number of college-educated athletes in comparison to the major leagues. So that made no sense. But then he finally gets to the crux of the situation. In 1945, by the time that letter has been written, the New York Yankees had made netted nearly $100,000 from the Negro League. They were renting Yankee Stadium. They were renting Rupert Stadium across the river in Newark and Blue Stadium here in Kansas City. $100,000, man, in 1945. $100,000 is pretty good money now. But in 1945, that was a whole lot of money. And and they did not want to risk losing that source of revenue. They didn't have to do anything but sign on the dotted line to get that money. And and I tell people all the time, D.A., 
anytime they say it ain't about the money, <laughs> it's always about the money. Yeah, and that had as much to do with keeping these guys out of the major leagues as the social conditions of our time because there were a lot of major league teams that were making money from the Negro Leagues because they were indeed winning their ballpark. Boy, the Brooklyn Dodgers are not only pioneers because of Jackie Robinson, but you've now noted that Don Newcomb is the first black ace, the first black frontline starting pitcher, and Roy Campanella is probably the first black catcher, if not the first black superstar catcher. So the Dodgers broke all of those barriers that it was supposed to be no black players in baseball, and then also the two cerebral positions, they also they blasted right through that glass ceiling as well. They 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 really did. And, and Ricky saw this pool of talent, man. He saw this pool of talent that needed to be tapped into. And he essentially outsmarted the other major league owners. And the other owners really didn't care for Ricky because they saw him as this smart aleck know-it-all. And you know what? He was. But he outsmarted them to bring in and tap into this pool of talent that was basically just sitting out there waiting this reservoir of tremendous talent. And he goes and gets Jackie, Hall of Famer. Newcomb should be in the Hall of Fame. Campy, three-time MVP, Hall of Famer. Of course, we know Don Newcomb was first to win the Cy Young MVP and Rookie of the Year. This talent was just, it, it was just brimming there in the Negro League, and Ricky wasn't afraid to go tap into it. The American League was very slow to integrate. They came in essentially kicking and screaming. Elston Howard would be the first black MVP in the American League when the Yankees finally bring him up. He was converted to a catcher, which is, this is rarefied territory. He was converted to a catcher, but when your catcher is Yogi Berra, you ain't ever going to catch. So he tore up. <laughs> he toiled in the minor leagues for quite some time, but when he does come up, he becomes the heart and soul of those Yankee teams. And and Ellie and Ernie Banks were roommates with the Kansas City Monarchs. And Ernie Banks used to tell me, and you know, I still piss myself when I say stuff like Ernie Banks used to tell. Really? That is you know, it, it, it never it, It's never lost on me how special this role that I get to play and the amazing people that I've gotten to meet as a result of my work with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. He told me that he and Ellie would sit up at night because now it's no pipe drink. Jackie has already broken the color barrier. They know that there is this real opportunity and that they would sit up at night and they would dream out loud about which one of them would get to the major leagues first. Of course, Ernie beats his Ruby to the major leagues, but Ellie eventually becomes the first black Yankee. And, and of course, Ellie, I think, doesn't get nearly enough consideration for the Hall of Fame. And had he not gotten sick, he might have had an opportunity to eventually manage the Yankees. And, and who knows? But yeah, no, the, the Yankees were slow but the American League was also very slow. And I used to hear the great, Don, Bob, the great Bob Gibson say that the black players thought that the American League was a place where old ball players went to die. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and during that same time frame, from 1949 to 1959, 
nine of 11 National League most valuable players were former Negro League stars. Wow. Yeah. Wow, how about that? Yeah. That is something. Well, speaking of in New York, in the Tri-State area, we had three different Negro Leagues franchises. In New Jersey, there were the Newark Eagles. You had mentioned them earlier. There were the New York Black Yankees, and then there were the New York Cubans. Give yeah. us a bit of an overview of these three franchises. The New York Black Yankees, were they the team that played at Yankee Stadium? They played some games at Yankee Stadium, but they eventually, the rent became too expensive for them, and they moved to Patterson, New Jersey. And you may you may remember that they just restored Hitchcliffe Stadium over in Patterson. That was really the primary home to the Black Yankees. They did play some games at Yankee Stadium, and they wore the old Yankees uniform. The Yankees sold them their old uniform. Wow! So the uniform looked identical to the New York Yankees because they wore the New York Yankees uniforms. <laughs> and the New York Black Yankees were once owned by the great tap dancer. Bill Bojangle Robinson. Wow. And, and Buck O'Neill says, D.A., the first and only time that he ever rode in a Rolls Royce was when he was in New York in the car with Bill Bojangle Robinson. And, and Bojangle used to be part of the show. He would typically race the other team's fastest player and he would race them backwards because he obviously had great feet as a tap dancer and so he was part of the show. The New York Cubans is where my good friend, the late great Minnie Minoso, began his career with the New York Cubans. And uh, that Cuban team was outstanding. They won a Negro Leagues World Series. A lot of times those Cuban teams really didn't have a whole lot of Cubans on them. But the, again, the belief was if you were anything other than American-born Black, you get around in this country pretty good. So, which is why you had a lot of Negro League players try to pass themselves off by speaking a broken down Spanish because it might help them get a meal in a place where otherwise they couldn't get a meal. And here were athletes who were as American as anyone being treated as un-American as anyone to the point that you had to pass yourself off by being from a of being of another nationality. But the New York Cubans had great teams. Louis Tion's father, Louis Tion Sr., was a star for the New York Cubans. Great pitcher. There are those who believe that he was actually more dominant than El Tionte. And I can tell you, without any hesitation, Louis Tion Jr. should be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah, but they're all connected to that great New York Cuban team and the Newark Eagles. Man, they had a tremendous conglomeration of talent. Hall of Famers, Monty Irvin, Leon Day, Willie Wells. We mentioned the fact that, you know, that that team was tremendous. They beat my Kansas City Monarchs to win the World Series in 1946. Broke old Buck's heart, man. Broke Buck's heart. They won a thrilling seven-game series away from the Kansas City Monarchs. They were all by Effa Manley, as I mentioned. Uh, Raleigh Biz Mackey, another Hall of Famer that starred for the Newark Eagles. And I remember my dear friend, the late great Monty Irvin, talking about the minute Jackie Robinson joined Brooklyn, that black fan base that had supported the Eagles went across the river 
to go watch Jackie and Brooklyn play. And, and they they died almost immediately. The teams out east, almost the minute that Jackie joins Brooklyn and Larry joins Cleveland, those teams out east died quickly. Matter of fact, as we take this this weekend, we have our salute to the Negro Leagues between the Royals and the Houston Astros. The Royals will be wearing the 1945 Kansas City Monarch uniform the same year that Jackie played here. And Houston will wear the Houston Eagles uniform. The Newark Eagles left Newark and moved out to Houston trying to survive, but it just didn't work. And they ended up dying. But again, the Negro Leagues also ended up dying a slow death with the integration of our game. That was the byproduct of the integration of our game. New York was a popular destination for African-Americans coming from the South, post-war, pre-war. There were jobs, there were factories. There there was a lot of industry in New York. At the time when the Negro Leagues is healthiest, is attendance for the three New York area teams pretty good? Are they a popular product? Oh, man, what you talking about? Buck says they would come to New York. They would play a 14 double header at Yankee Stadium. Kansas City Monarchs, New York Cubans, New York Black Yankees, Memphis Red Sox, play a 14 double header there at Yankee Stadium. They, of course, were staying in Harlem. And the late great Reverend Adam Clayton Powell singed Abyssinia Baptist Church. He said they would pre- he would preach a baseball sermon. All the teams are there in the church. And then afterwards, they would leave headed over to the Bronx uh-huh, in full regalia. You got nearly 40,000 going to watch the games. You know, as I mentioned, Newark drew extremely well. They were a tremendously successful team. So were the New York Cubans. So New York has a tremendous legacy of great black baseball history. There was another team called the Brooklyn Royal Giants. They weren't in existence very long, but that is also part of New York's black baseball history. So, yeah, no, there are so many wonderful stories that are associated with black baseball there in that greater New York area. But the three teams that you named, those were the main teams. The New York Black Yankees were probably the 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 least greatest of all those teams. But, you know, they are a bit of a, a novelty because people get a kick out of the fact that they were the Black Yankees. <laughs> yeah, it's really wild. It's, it's so cool also that you honored Doc Gooden. You know, here in New York, he has such an amazing legacy. He's, his number is going to be retired next year by the New York Mets. And 1984-85, dominant seasons for Doc, and then they win the World Series in 86, and then he goes to the Yankees and pitches the no-hitter in 96, part of that World Series team. When he was at his greatest, we all thought maybe this is the greatest pitcher we've ever seen. So what were your memories of Doc, and what was it like to spend some time with him now as he's getting a lot of admiration at this point after his career? It was his first visit to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Oh, wow. It was. And he was blown away, as most African-American and Hispanic athletes in particular are blown away by that experience because this is your mecca. You know, these are your roots. And it was very emotional for Doc to be there at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum 
like most of those ball players from that era, there was a common thread, Buck O'Neill. They all knew and loved Buck. And he talked about how Buck would come to Shea Stadium, sit down and talk to them, tell stories about the Negro Leagues. And then he had finally got an opportunity, as we both said, to come home. Yeah, the Negro Leagues Museum was home. And to be there and be part of that experience with him, for him, the experience of playing in New York is something that he cherishes, you know, both his time with the Mets. And then to go over to the other side, you know, Mets and Yankee fans, that don't go together. (laughs) (laughs) To tell the story, and and I think he had virtually all of us almost in tears when he told the story of throwing that no-hitter. Of course, he had been demoted. Joe Torrey had demoted him, had taken him out of the rotation, and David Cohn has the aneurysm. And George Steinbrenner says, put him back in the rotation. And I don't think Torrey really wanted to do it, but when the ball said put him back in the rotation, what you going to do? You put him back in the rotation. <laughs> and Doc says, the day when he throws the no-hitter, his father is ill and needed to have open heart surgery and wasn't sure if he was going to pull through it. And he was going back and forth with the dilemma on whether or not to leave the Yankees to go home to be there with his father because he wasn't sure if his father was going to make it out of that surgery or pitch. And he wanted to pitch that game. And he said he didn't have his great stuff that day, but maybe there was an angel on his shoulder because, as you know, he throws that no-hitter and he does make it home in time to see his father and his father soon after would pass away. Uh, and it, were, it really was an emotional moment for all of us to hear him tell that story. But to see also the mutual admiration that each of our guys had for one another. You know, I think there was reverence for Al Downing, who was the elder statesman of that group. And, and then you had a Dondrell Willis, who idolized Dave Stewart. And Stu was in town to be part of this. We had already inducted Stu into the Hall of Game, but Stu was there to share memory, remembrances of his dear friend Vita Blue and former teammate, and, and to be there for Mike Norris. Mike got ill and could not make it, so Stu sat in and, and, and told us how important Mike Norris was in his career and how great a pitcher Mike Norris was. So the entire evening was just magical, man, but to have Doc, because you're right, his first several years in the major leagues, there was no question he was on the road to becoming a Hall of Famer. And you can still make a case that he might deserve to be there now because he was absolutely amazing. And I just remember that that big hook, Uncle Charlie. You know, he had the great fastball, but that hook was as lethal as anything you've ever seen, man. Mm. I love talking to Dave Stewart because you remember him on the mound for those wonderful A's teams, and he was so fierce, and he was so focused, <laughs> and so intimidating. I mean, you were like, I don't want to ever have to face that kind of big game, and yet you talk to him now, and he couldn't be more cordial and friendly oh, and wonderful and warm, and you're like, man, yeah, you, were, man. you were a beast on the mound. Yeah, no, no, he looked, so, he looked so menacing, that, that yeah. death stare. 
had that bill turned down on yeah. the cap. And it's one of the nicest people you will ever meet. <laughs> it's wild. It's wild. You have this wonderful podcast called Black Diamonds, and it tells the stories of the Negro Leagues. This podcast has become wildly popular over the last couple of seasons. You just recorded your latest episode for it, which wraps up the latest season. But what is this final episode of this season's Black Diamonds about? Well, we recorded the Hall of Game. We recorded the Hall of Game, and so all the stories that the guys shared is part of the uh, final regular season episode of Black Diamonds. I got a funny feeling that there will likely be a couple of things in terms of a special edition of Black Diamonds that will come out before this year is over with. We'll come back next April. I've already re-upped and agreed to uh, join my friends over at Sirius XM Radio on another season of Black Diamonds, our fourth season of Black Diamonds. Man, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed at how people have embraced this podcast around the world. And a legion of new baseball fans, young baseball fans, are falling in love with the Negro Leagues. And and it's just so gratifying and heartwarming. You know, we get to tell these stories and we're telling them to baseball fans and they've not heard these stories before. And, And they are just embracing them and we couldn't be more excited. And what a platform DA, this has been for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. We're talking not only a national, but an international platform. And, and so people are hearing my voice damn near everywhere they turn. I'm, I'm sure they're getting tired of, <laughs> of hearing me. <laughs> well, you've got this amazing gift, and that is that your warmth and your passion and your love of the history of the game and these players comes through, and you have this amazing knowledge of these stories and anecdotes and the thread that weaves it all together. So for you to be the voice of the museum and these players, their legacy means so much. And you're the perfect guy to host that type of podcast because they're stories that haven't been told enough or have been never told. And your passion for it pours through that microphone and through the speakers of the earphones. So I I just I think the podcast is wonderful. I think it's so valuable and it's just a wonderful, wonderful listen. Now, it, it was perfect, man. Now, I granted, I came into this whole podcast business kicking and screaming myself. <laughs> I'm trying to convince me, Bob, you need to do this podcast. You need to do this podcast. And I'm telling them, man, I don't have time to do a podcast. You know, we're running full throttle here at the Negro Leagues Museum. I didn't need one more thing to put on my plate. But the more I thought about this and the platform that it was going to provide, how could you turn down this opportunity? And it's been one of the best things that the museum has done. And for me, even both personally and professionally, one of the best things that I could have done. And, and as a result, we're seeing our business impacted across the board. Mm-hmm. We're seeing more donations come into the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, more people coming out to Kansas City to visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. There are those who are now sending memorabilia that they want to have on display oh, wow. at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So you just never know where your next donor is coming from. And so you need to create these opportunities. And again, they have provided an international platform for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Well, 
it's it's an amazing podcast, but an even more amazing museum. And for those of the New York area or listening wherever you are listening to this podcast, I cannot encourage it enough to go there. I was fortunate enough to be working in Kansas City and go to the museum a number of times, but it has exploded since then. You guys have added so many cool exhibits and the footprint of it. It is at 1616 East 18th Street in Kansas City. It's just, it's such a must. And you and I have spoken about this on my show before. To bring your child to that museum, you are doing a great service to the next generation because when they are there and they feel and they see that, I think it's incredibly valuable to just understand the history and understand how we move forward and how we are better and how we can all be better about it. So, I mean, it's just such a valuable institution to have. and, And for kids, it's just such an incredible experience to share with them. It, it, it really is. And, you know, we talk about all these creative avenues in which we're getting the message out about the museum. To be honest, DA, I don't know, along with this podcast, which is continuing to give Negro Leagues history a mainstream voice and the inclusion of the Negro Leagues in the video game, MLB The Show. Oh, that is so cool, too. Yeah. This has been literally game changing because we are now talking about millions of young kids and young adults who are on this gaming platform. I'll be, I'll be honest, man. I thought we were doing something pretty cool and it is very cool, but I had no idea how big this gaming platform really is. And I have been blown away and almost every single day, Someone walked in that museum because they saw me on the video game. Now, first of all, who would have ever thought that I'd been in the video game? <laughs> That's a whole other story. I certainly would not have. And, and the stories that we're telling in the video game, I, I, I tell the story all the time. I was taking a group of potential investors. You may be aware that we are part of a group that's trying to bring Major League Baseball to Nashville, expansion major league team to Nashville, and I'm going to speak it into existence. When we're successful, the team would be called the Nashville Stars after the old Negro Leagues team. And so I was taking some guys who were potential investors in this in this effort and on the tour of the museum. We get on the field of legends where the life-size statues are. And I go through the litany of names who are in position as if they were playing a game. And of course, on the mound, none other than the, the legendary Leroy Satchel Page. And I'm telling Satchel Page stories. And some of you may be aware that Satchel had names for his pitches. So he didn't have fastball, curveball, changeup, slide, and not Satchel. He had what he called his midnight creeper. He had the two humble. He had the hesitation pitch. He had the long tom, the short tom, the junk ball, the trouble ball, the radio ball, the wobbly ball, the dipsy doon. And he also had a pitch DA that he famously called his B-ball. And I would always pose the question, do you know why he called it the B-ball? And when I, when I posed that question, a young white kid was with his dad. He couldn't have been more than nine or 10 years old. And he looks at me, man, he sticks out his chest, he raises his hand. He said, Mr. Kendrick, I know why Satchel called it the B-ball. I said, you do. Well, tell the folks why he called it the B-ball. He says Satchel called it the B-ball because Satchel says 
it be where I wanted to be when I wanted to be there. And, <laughs> and I look at him, I said, man, you must have been playing the show. And his daddy looks at me, he says, yes, he's been playing the show and he's been listening to the stories that you've been telling. <laughs> Kids are going to their baseball practices. They're naming their pitches because Satchel's in the video game. Wow. You know, wow. and, it, and it just touches you, man. It touches you because that's exactly what we hoped would happen. I don't think there was ever time that people didn't want to know about the Negro Leagues. They just had no way to know about the Negro Leagues until this museum really came into the forefront and now we're looking at these non-traditional ways to get this history in as front of as many people as we possibly can. I can't wait for them to come to me. I've got to go to them. And I've got to go to them in the, in the, the modes and mediums in which they are accustomed to getting that information and engaging. This video game has been, like I said, one of the biggest things this museum has ever done. Amazing. It's just a wonderful time to be part of the museum and to visit the museum, to engage with the museum. Black Diamonds, the podcast is amazing. It's amazing that it's part of the show as well. You got to get to the museum itself and bring your kids because it's just touching in, in many, many, many ways. Bob, as you said, man, you were a busy dude and you just got done with the Hall of Game. So I know that it's been crazy. So the fact that you took time out for us is means a great deal. And I appreciate our friendship very much dating back many years. And so thank you so much for joining us. And uh, this has just been, it's, it's always fun, but this was really amazing. Man, it's my pleasure. It's great to see you. And again, thanks so much for having me on the show. Well, I think you can see why I consider this conversation probably my favorite that we've done since we began this podcast series. Bob is just an elite storyteller. You just want him to go on and on and on. And I honestly had three or four more questions or avenues we could go down just to keep talking, but I didn't want to monopolize his time. But Bob is just one of those guys that his enthusiasm is infectious. And I had a chance to spend five years of my life in Kansas City and try to visit every so often to get back to see some friends there. But if you've never been to KC or looking for a good excuse to bring the kids somewhere for a vacation, a spring break, Winter vacation, maybe next year's summer vacation. I cannot encourage you to visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum more. It is such a walk through history, and it's uplifting. It really, they've done a wonderful job of telling the story of the Negro Leagues and then integration in baseball, but also doing it with a nod to how a greater good has been served in America. And I think it's just so valuable for kids, and it's uplifting and it's also important, and it's just all of the things that you would hope for. They do a wonderful job there, and I just can't say enough good things about it. So I thought it was interesting just to talk to Bob about the Newark Eagles and the New York Black Yankees and the New York Cubans because we know so much about the Yankees and Mets, the Dodgers and Giants, but the Negro Leagues teams really aren't talked about, discussed much here. And I know that for me, I just didn't know much about them at all, and so knowing that I had Bob as a resource and having seen that they just honored Doc Gooden and Al Downing, I was like, you know what? This is a good chance for me to learn about this even more as well because, to be quite frank, I just I needed to, to understand it and I wanted to learn more about it. So I loved what he said also about the Negro League's players being featured now in MLB The Show and a new generation of kids finding out about them. And, man, you know, you just – 
a different set of legends from a different era that were just as great as many of the ball players that that we know from Major League Baseball. And it's cool to see them getting their due museum form, video game form, and for a current generation. I love that. Anyway, thanks to executive producer Bryce Gelman on this project. You can catch me on social media at DA on CBS on Twitter slash X or on Instagram at Damon Amendo. Until next week, have a wonderful rest of your week, everybody. This is New York Accent, an original Odyssey series.